Arthur Pink, Spiritual Growth. I think we're up to 13 or so. And we're on its means, and we're in the middle of the chapter. A really good chapter. <clears throat> yes, first and foremost, the scriptures are profitable for doctrine. God says so. And those who declare otherwise are liars and deceivers. That refutes and condemns those who are prejudiced against the doctrines of the gospel on the pretense that it is unfriendly to the practical side of the Christian life. That personal piety or holy living may be neglected through an excessive attachment to the favor of theological tenets is readily granted, but that doctrinal instruction is inimical, inimical to following the example which Christ has left us, we emphatically deny. <clears throat> the whole teaching of Scripture is the doctrine which is according to godliness, 1 Timothy 6.3. That is to say, it is the doctrine which inculcates godliness, which supplies motives to godliness, which therefore promotes it. It divine truth can be received according to the lovely proportions in which it is presented in the word. So far from such a reception of it, in never any practical godliness, it will be found to be the life of it. Doctrinal, experimental, and practical religion are so necessarily connected together, they could have no existence apart from each other. The influence of the truth upon our hearts and minds is the source of all our spiritual feelings. And those feelings and affections are the springs of every good word and work. Second, <clears throat> the inspired scriptures are profitable for reproof or conviction. Five times the Greek word is rendered rebuke, and once, tell him his fault, Matthew 18.15. Here's the chief reason why the scriptures are so unpalatable to the unsaved. They set before him a standard concerning which he knows he falls far short. They require that which is thoroughly distasteful to him and prohibit those things which his evil nature loves and craves. Thus, their holy teachings roundly condemn him. It is because the word of God inculcates holiness and centers every form of evil that the unregenerate have such a disrelish for it. It is because the word convicts its readers of his sins, upbraids him for his ungodliness, blames his for his inward as well as his outward lack of, <coughs> of conformity thereunto, that the natural man shuns it. Flesh and blood resent interference, chafe against being censored, and is angry when told his or her faults. It is much too humbling for the pride of the natural man to be rebuked for his failures and chided for his errors. Therefore, he prefers prophecy or something which pricks not his conscience. Profitable for reproof. Are you, am I, willing to be reproved? Are we really honestly desirous of having made known to us everything in which is contrary to the law of the Lord and is therefore displeasing to him? Are we truly agreeable to be searched by the white light of the truth, to bear our hearts to the sword of the Spirit? The true answer to that question reveals whether or not we are regenerate, whether a miracle of grace has been wrought in us, or whether we are still in a state of nature. <coughs> Unless the answer be in the affirmative, there cannot possibly be any spiritual growth in us, for us. Of the wicked it is said, they despised all my reproof, Proverbs 1.30. On the one hand we are told, he that hateth reproof is brutish, and shall die. Proverbs 12, 1, 15, 17. On the other, reproofs of our instruction are the way of life. He that heareth reproof getteth understanding. Proverbs 6, 23 and 15, 32. 
If we are to profit from the scriptures, we must ever approach them with an honest desire that all amiss in us may be rebuked by their teachings and be humbled unto the dust before God in consequence thereof. Third, the scriptures are profitable for correction. The Greek word occurs nowhere else in the New Testament but signifies setting right. The reproving is but a means to an end. It is a showing us what is wrong and that it may be put right. Everything about us, both within and without, needs correction, for the fall has put man all out of joint with God and holiness. Our thoughts on everything are wrong and need re readjusting. Our affections are all disorderly and need regulating. Our character is utterly unlike Christ and has to be conformed to his image. Our conduct is wayward and demands squaring with the rule of righteousness. God has given us his word that under its guidance we may regulate our beliefs, renovate our hearts, and reform our lives. Hence it answers but a poor end to read a chapter once or twice a day for the sake of decency without any definite intention of complying with the mind of God as revealed therein. Since he has given us the scriptures for correction, we should ever approach them with a sincere purpose of bringing into harmony with them everything that is disorderly within us and irregular without us. Fourth, the scriptures are profitable for instruction in righteousness. That is the end for which the other three things are the means. As Matthew Henry pointed out, the scriptures are, quote, profitable for us for all the purposes of the Christian life. They answer all the ends of the divine <coughs> revelation. They instruct us in all that is true, reprove us for all which is amiss, direct us in all that is good, end of quote. Instruction in righteousness refers not to the imputed righteousness of Christ, but uh, for that is included in doctrine, but relates to integrity of character and conduct. It is inherent in practical righteousness, which is the fruit of the, of the imputed. For that we need instructing out of the word, for neither reason nor conscience are adequate for such a task. If our judgment be formed, or our actions be regulated by dreams or visions or supposed immediate revelations through heaven, rather than by the plain meaning of the Holy Scriptures, then we slight them, and God may justly give us up to our delusions. If we follow the fashion, imitate our fellows, or take public opinion for our standard, we are but heathen. But if the word of God is the only source of our wisdom and guidance, we shall be found treading the paths of righteousness. Psalm 23, 6. The Bible is something very different from a picture book for amusing children, though it contains beautiful types and depicts scenes and events in a manner no artist's brush could convey. It is something more than a precious mine of treasure for us to dig into, though it contains wonders and riches far more excellent than any unearthed at Kimberley. It has not been sufficiently realized that God has given us his word for the ordering of our daily lives. The secret things belong unto the Lord, our God, but the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law, Deuteronomy 29, 29. How very rarely do we hear or see that last clause quoted? Is not the omitting of it significant and solemn comment on our times? God has given us his word for the intellectual, not for intellectual attainment, entertainment, not for the merely curious to exercise his imagination upon, nor for making it a battleground for theological strife, but to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Psalm 119, 105. To point out the way in which we should walk and to 
seduciously avoid those byways which lead us to certain destruction. And just a comment, it just says something about the modern Reformed faith that the law of God is frowned upon as something only for Israel, and uh, we're told to look to natural law. When Deuteronomy 29, 29 says it's so we may keep his law, that is the written revelation, that is what is revealed in Scripture. Anyway, so much for that. We'll continue. Romans 15, 4. For what things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Thus the whole of the Old Testament is for our instruction, in order that by patiently cleaving to the Lord in faith and obedience, amid all our trials and temptations, and by taking comfort from the daily perusal of the Scriptures, we might possess a joyful hope of heaven, notwithstanding past sins and present manifold defects. Now all those things concerning Israel's sins in the wilderness and God's judgment upon them happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, 1 Corinthians 10.11, or warning. For us to take heart, to heed, to avoid, we shall meet with similar temptations, and there is still the same evil nature in us as was in them. And unless it be mortified, the same awful fate will overtake us. Psalm 119.35, make me go into the path of thy commandments. It will profit us nothing, nay, it will add to our condemnation if we read the preceptive parts of the scriptures without attention and determination, through God's help, to conform our conduct thereto. 1 John 2.1, my little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin, sin not. That is the design bearing an end, not only of this epistle, but of all the scriptures. That is, the object of which every doctrine, every precept, every promise aims, that ye sin not. The Bible is the only book in the world which pays any regard to sin against God. The revelation which it makes of God's omniscience, thou knowest my downsitting, mine uprising, my understanding, my thoughts, afar off, Psalm 139.2, says to me, sin not. So of his omniscience, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs 15.3 says to me, sin not. Are we taught the holiness of God? It is that we should be holy. It is the truth of resurrection revealed. It is that we should awake to righteousness and sin not, 1 Corinthians 15.34. For what purpose was the Son of God manifested? That he might destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3.8. Precious promises are given us with the express design that we should cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. <clears throat> desire the, 1 Peter 2, 2. Desire the pure milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. In order to be nourished by the word, we must desire it. And like every other desire, that one may be cultivated or checked, as after a time the mind was loathed by those who lusted for the flesh pots of Egypt. The aim of that desire for the word is that ye may grow thereby. Grow in knowledge and grace and holiness. Grow up into Christ in all things. Ephesians 4, 15. Grow in fruitfulness to God and helpfulness to your fellows. The word must not only be desired, but received with meekness. James 1.21 It is, that is, with yieldedness of will and pliability of heart, with readiness to be molded by its holy requirements. It must also be mixed with faith, Hebrews 4.2, that is, received unquestioningly as God's own word to me, appropriated and assimilated by me. It must be approached humbly, and prayerfully, as the Hebrews had to bow down or go down upon the knees to obtain the tiny mana on the ground. Teach me thy statutes, Psalm 119.12. 1 
their meaning, their application to all the details of my life, how to perform them. If we would read the scriptures to advantage, if our souls are to be nurtured by them, if we are to make true Christian progress, then it must be by earnest prayer and constant meditation. It is only by pondering the words of God that they become fixed on our minds and exert a salutary influence upon our thoughts and actions. Things forgotten have no power to regulate us, and scripture is soon forgotten unless it is turned over and over in the mind. A wondrous blessing is pronounced upon the man who meditates in God's law day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, which bringeth forth his fruit in season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Psalm 1.3 These things I write unto you, that your joy may be full. 1 John 1.3 excuse me, 1-4. Holiness and happiness are inseparably connected. Destruction and misery are the ways of the wicked, Romans 3.16. But wisdom's ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace, Proverbs 3.17. Number four, occupation with Christ. Clearly this comes out. This comes next. We must have the scriptures before we can have Christ. For they are which testify of him, John 5.39. Where the Bible has not gone, Christ is unknown. But in scriptures he is fully revealed, and the volume of the book it is written of him. In him, all its teachings center, for they are the doctrine of Christ, 2 John 9. In him, all the precepts are perfectly fulfilled. In him, all its promises are certified, 2 Corinthians 1.20. In him, all its prophecies culminate, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19.10. Divorce doctrine from Christ, and it is indeed dry. Separate precepts from Christ, and we have no perfect ex exemplification of them. Sever the promises from Christ, and they are no longer yea and amen. Part asunder the prophecies from Christ, and they are of no profit to the soul, but rather enigmas for useless speculation. Christ is the Alpha and Omega of the written word. Jesus Christ is the first name mentioned in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, and the last. Revelation twenty two twenty one, and the old is filled with foreshadowings and forecasts of him. If the Christian desires the milk of the word that he may grow thereby, it is that he may grow up into all things, up into unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Ephesians four fifteen. It is under the image of God's Son that the saint is predestined to be conformed. It is upon Christ now seated at God's right hand. He is to be steadfastly set his affection. Colossians 3.1. It is with his eyes fixed upon Christ that he is to run the race which is set before him. Hebrews 12.2. It is of Christ that he is to learn. Matthew 11.29. From his fullness he is to receive. John 1.16. By his commandments be directed. John 14.15. It is on Christ he is to feed as Israel did on the manna in the wilderness. John 6. It is to Christ he is to go in all his troubles. Matthew 14.12. For he is a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. It is for the honor and glory of Christ he is ever to aim. Philippians 1.20 In short, the Christian is so to act that he can say, For me to live is Christ. Now, in order to have fellowship with another, there must be three things. The other must be known, he must be present, and I must have a free and familiar access to him. Thus it is with the soul and Christ. First, I must be personally acquainted with him. He must be a living reality to my soul. Therefore, it follows that if I am to have close fellowship with him, I must become better acquainted with him. And proportions as I do, such will be my progress. 
We agree with Pierce that we're, that the words grow in grace are explained, at least in part at least, by the clause immediately follows, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. For the second verse of the epistle, uh, for the second verse of that epistle tells us that grace and peace are multiplied unto us through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus. One of the chief things which regards the Christian, which renders him weak in faith and causes his grace to languish, is his failure to increase in the knowledge of his Lord and Savior, and thereby attain to a deeper and more intimate acquaintance with him. How can we fully trust or set our affections upon one who is well nigh a stranger unto us? Though the Christian believes in an unseen Christ, he does not. He could not trust in an unknown Christ. Nor his testimony is, I know whom I have believed, 2 Timothy 1.12, which does not mean I know him because I have believed, but rather I believed in him because he stood revealed in my heart. Take the experience of the one who penned these words. There was a time when Paul was ignorant of Christ. Before his conversion, the apostle knew him not, and consequently, <coughs> he then had no faith in him, no love for him, and no pantings after him. And it is thus with all before regeneration. They knew not the things which belong to their everlasting peace. Paul was a great scholar, a strict moralist, a devout religionist, yet he was completely ignorant of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom to know is life eternal. He was trained by Gamaliel, the famous teacher of that day, was deeply versed in the contents of the Old Testament, and had listened to the sermon of dying Stephen, and yet was a total stranger to the Christ of God. Nor does his theological training, philosophic mind, or acquaintance with the scriptures lead him to a saving knowledge of Christ. All that Paul knew of Christ was by teaching from above. It was God who enlightened his mind with a saving knowledge of the truth, and who drew his heart unto the Lord Jesus by his own invincible grace and love. And thus, it is with each one whom the Lord God omnipotent calleth. Every person in his natural state is altogether ignorant of the true God, and is an utter stranger to the to the alone and all-sufficient mediator, the righteous Redeemer, who is mighty to save. And how are they brought into an acquaintance with him? It is holy of grace, and through the supernatural operations of the Holy Spirit upon their souls. To the, uh, <coughs> as a spirit of wisdom and revelation, he is pleased to quicken the soul with spiritual life, and to illumine the mind with a knowledge of divine truth, imparting an inward spiritual perception of Christ to the heart thereby. The outward revelation of Christ to us is in the written word, which sets him forth and testifies of him, in which he is clearly, freely, and fully exhibited. And that external revelation has no saving effect upon us until the Holy Spirit shines upon our blind minds, removes the veil which is in our, over our hearts, 2 Corinthians 3, 14 and 16, and opens our understandings that we might understand the scriptures, Luke 24, 45, and what is written therein concerning Christ. <clears throat> it is only as the soul is regenerated that that it is capacitated to take in spiritual views of the person, office, and work of Christ, to obtain a real and satisfying knowledge of his godhood and manhood, the purpose and design of the Father in his miraculous incarnation, life, obedience, death, and resurrection. It is the great office and work of the Holy Spirit to testify of the Son, John fifteen twenty six, to glorify him, John sixteen fourteen, to take of the things of Christ and show unto those for whom he died, John sixteen fifteen. To make him known unto the hearts of poor sinners. He does this in and by the word, after he has fitted the soul to receive it. Hence, the apostle said, We know that the Son of God has come. 1 John 5.20 
How did John and those to whom he wrote know that? His next word tells us, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. A spiritual understanding, which is the gift of God, is a principal part of the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration. And it is by that spiritual understanding the quickening soul is enabled to receive from the word a spiritual and supernatural knowledge of Christ. Just as it is by means of the eye, and that alone we can see and admire the glorious shining of the sun. If it be asked, what are those sights which the Holy Spirit gives us, whereby he begets faith in the heart, or whereby he maketh the discovery of Christ unto the soul? The answer is, the Spirit gives us no other views of Christ than that than what are in exact accordance with the revelation made of him in the scriptures of truth. But more specifically, the first discovery which the Spirit makes of Christ of the poor sinner is as fully suited and all-sufficient Savior, whose person and perfections are eternal and infinite, who was born into this world and called Jesus that should save his people from their sins, Matthew one twenty one. He makes known to the soul in wondrous love the amazing grace of Christ, his robe of righteousness, his efficacious blood which was shed for those deserving of naught but hell. He thereby takes of the things of Christ and makes such a discovery of them that the soul is captivated, the will captured, and the heart won to him. And thereby the sinner is led to believe in his person, surrender to his scepter, and rest on his finished work. The Spirit enlightens the understanding, brings the will to choose him as his absolute Lord, his heart to love him, and his conscience to be satisfied with his sacrifice, and his whole being yields to be governed and guided by him. Thus Christ is revealed in the hearts of his people, Galatians 1.16, as their only hope of eternal glory. The word of God is the sole rule and ground of their faith. Christ is exhibited therein as the immediate object of it, and as a spirit takes to the things of him and reveals them, to the renewed soul he draws forth his acts upon Christ as he is made known. And thereby he becomes real and precious to the soul. Thereby his heart, the heart is brought into the enjoyment of his love, to delight in his perfections, to behold him as altogether lovely. As Christ is made the object of faith, faith is a spiritual perception of him, thereby he has become a living and present reality. As the heart is engaged with him, as the thoughts are exercised upon his person, his titles, his offices, his perfections, his work, the soul exclaims, my meditation of him shall be sweet. I will be glad in the Lord. Psalm 104.34 Believers love not an unknown Christ, nor do they trust in one in whom they, have not, they are not unacquainted. Though unseen by the natural eye, when faith is in exercise, the one can say, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Now it is from this personal inward and spiritual knowledge of Christ received from the word as taught by the spirit that faith in Christ takes its rise and love to him springs therefrom as its proper cause. But all believers do not possess an equally clear and full knowledge of Christ. To some he is more fully revealed. Whilst others have a vaguer view and a lesser apprehension of him which constitutes the difference between a strong and a weak Christian. The weak believer knows but little of Christ and therefore does not trust or delight in him so much as does a stronger one, for the latter differs from him in that he is led to a closer and fuller acquaintance with his Savior. That may be accounted for both by the divine side of things and from the human. As we cannot see the Son but in his own light, neither can we see the Son of Righteousness but in his light. Psalm 36.9 
as we cannot see temporal things and objects without light, so faith cannot see Christ, but as the Holy Spirit shines upon and enlightens it. Nevertheless, Christ is not capricious in his shining, nor the Spirit arbitrary in his illumination. Christ has declared, John 14, 21, He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and I will love him, and will manifest myself unto him. But if the Christian yields to the spirit of self-pleasing, and for a season keeps not the commandments of his Lord, then such precious manifestations of him to the soul will be withheld. It is an office and work of the Spirit to take the things of Christ and show them to the renewed. But if the believer disregards that injunction, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians 4.30, and allows things in his life which are displeasing to him, so far from regaling him with fresh views of Christ, he will withhold his cordials and comforts and make him wretched until he is convicted of his backsliding and brought to a full confession thereof. On the one hand, the Christian who is favored with a deeper knowledge and clear acquaintance with Christ frankly disavows his personal credit and freely ascribes his blessings wholly unto the distinguishing grace. But on the other hand, the Christian who makes little progress in the school of Christ and enjoys but little intimate fellowship with him must take the entire blame to himself, a distinction which ever needs to be borne in mind. <coughs> Concerning Israel of old, and the supply of food which God gave them in the wilderness, it is recorded, and gathered some more, some less. Exodus sixteen, seventeen. The manna, type of Christ, was freely given, made accessible to all. If then some of them were indolent to the appropriate to appropriate as goodly a portion as the others, they had only themselves to blame. So is with the saint in Christ. We are instructed to pray that we might be increased in the knowledge of God, Colossians one ten. But if we are neglect, negligent to do so, or offer the portions only half-heartedly, we shall have not. We are assured, then, shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord, Hosea 6.3. The Hebrew word for follow on signifies uh, persevere, follow after. It is a forceful word connoting earnestness and diligence. The way and means are there described. We must highly value and steadfastly endeavor after the same, making it our principal quest. See Proverbs 2, 1 to 4, Philippians 3, 12 to 15. And then, if we perform the prescribed duty, we may certainly expect the promised blessing. But if we be lethargic and rest on our oars, no progress is made, and the fault is entirely ours. Since the believer owes his salvation to Christ, and is to spend eternity with him, surely he should make it his chief business an exorbitant concern to obtain a clear, better understanding of him. No other knowledge is so important, so blessed, so satisfying. We do not mean a bare theoretical, speculative, and uninfluential knowledge of him, but a supernatural, spiritual, believing, and transforming one. Said the Apostle, I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Philippians 3.9 Observe how comprehensive is this knowledge. Christ Jesus Lord, comprising the principal aspects in which he is set forth in the word, Christ, respecting his person and office, Jesus, his work and salvation, Lord, his dominion and rule over us. Note, too, it is an appropriating knowledge. Christ Jesus, my Lord, to apprehend him in my, as mine on good grounds is the excellency of this knowledge. <clears throat> the demons know him as prophet, priest, and king, but they apprehend him not with personal approbation to themselves. But this knowledge enables its professor to say, who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. This spiritual and saving knowledge of Christ is an effectual one, 
as Hebrews 6, 9 speaks of things that accompany salvation. So there are things which accompany this knowledge. Psalm 9, 10, that they know thy name, the Lord is as revealed, will put their trust in him. It cannot be otherwise. And the better they know him, the firmer and fuller will be their trust. John 6, 40, he that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. Seeing the Son is put before believing is the cause which produces the effect. The more we study and meditate upon the gracious person of Christ and his perfect salvation, the more we realize the everlasting sufficiency of his life and death to save us from all of our sins and miseries. The more will faith be fed and spiritual grace is nourished. So too, the more will our hearts be inflamed and our affections drawn out to him. It must be so, for faith worketh by love. Galatians 5, 6. The more Christ is trusted, the more he is endeared to the soul. The more we live in sights and views of all that he has done for us, of all his office relations to us, the more glorious will he be in our esteem. It is a spiritual view of Christ by faith, which removes guilt from the conscience, produces a sense of joy and peace in the heart, and enables the soul to say, my beloved is mine and I am his. As this knowledge is accompanied by faith and love, so also with obedience. Whereby do we know that we know him? If we keep his commandments, 1 John 2, 3. We know no more than we practice. Colossians 2, 6, as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Submitting to his authority, believing his gospel, leaning on his arm, counting on his faithfulness, looking to him for everything. To walk in him means to act in practical union with him. To walk is to be regulated by his revealed will, to tread the path he has appointed for us. To submit to his will is the only true liberty, as it is the secret of solid peace and joy. To take his yoke upon us and learn of him ensures genuine rest of soul. But as we only enjoy the good of Christ's promises, as we are, they are received by faith, appropriated to myself and relied upon, so with his precepts. They must be personally taken to myself and submitted to. Hence, we read of the obedience of faith, Romans 1.5. So too, they can only be performed by affection. If you love me, keep my commandments. And then we'll, we'll stop there. Uh, but this is just wonderful stuff. This is, this is, I've read a ton of Pank. And I think this is some of his very best stuff. This is so good. Now, are you studying scripture? Are you memorizing scripture in your problem areas? So you can think about it when you're tempted? Increase your knowledge. Increase your love. Increase your obedience. And that's our duty. And uh, in a world of wickedness that we live in, uh, when Christians are falling left and right to back and going back to the world, the United States, just in the last generation, uh, is like 20% less Christian than it was just a generation ago, uh, which is pretty tragic and kind of explains why we have such a wicked, degenerate culture. We need to be diligent. We need to be uh, focused on these things. Pink is great because he's teaching what the scripture says. Anyway, let us pray. We'll continue next week, Lord willing. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of your beloved servant, Pink. <clears throat> Help us to put these things in our heart. Help us to obey them. Help us to meditate on them. Help us to apply them. Help us, Lord. We fall short every day. We need Christ. We need him for justification, and we need him for sanctification. Fill us with your spirit. Direct our hearts. Bend them to obey, that we would be covenant keepers and not covenant breakers. In Jesus' name, amen.